Distractions from work, at work, is Dr. Hunter's message for today. From the New American Standard, he selected Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 48 as scripture text. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will, and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, shall receive many lashes." But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And now, let's join Dr. Hunter for his message, Distractions from Work at Work. Emily? Oh, hi, Dill. Thanks for the lunch invitation. Have a seat. Nice place. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> I've been meaning to have you over for ages. I had no idea you lived so close to my office. Mm-hmm. So, um, you didn't have to work today? Oh, no, I called in sick. Sick? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I am sick. I'm sick of work. <laughs> uh, I needed a mental health day. You know, besides... As much time as I spend overtime, they must owe me a week off. Yeah, well, you must have a pretty easygoing boss. I don't let my employees get away with mental health days. They don't punch the clock, they don't get paid. Hey, did I tell you uh, I'm up for another promotion? I thought you just got a promotion for that uh, lunch hour program that you dreamt up. Hey, if employees want to work through their lunch for credits towards parking privileges, that's their freedom of choice. Did I tell you, um, <clears throat> this idea is we want to move the time clock from the entranceway into the actual office. You see, we find that uh, they're wasting so much company time. They clock in, and then they go and get a cup of coffee, go to the washroom, chit-chat amongst each other. This way, they'll have to take care of all that on their own time. They'll punch in precisely at 9 a.m. at their desk. Great idea, huh? Yeah, if you like slave labor. Oh, come on, Emily. It's just good work ethic. You know, employees have to be forced to have good work habits. Well, maybe if you gave your employees a pleasant work environment, treated them with some respect, then maybe they'd give you loyalty. <laughs> you want loyalty, you got to buy a dog. I am a good employee for IBM. You called in sick today. <laughs> Mental health. Everyone does it, and it's acceptable. All right, all right. Let's not argue. Let's eat lunch. Okay. Oh, by the way, Miss Employee of the Month, if I like the recipe, can I write it down? Sure. Great. I'll just use this IBM office pen and write it down on this office memo pad. That it. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> I see IBM still makes the best copiers.
So let's talk about work some more. You know, we've been talking about how God helps us to face our limitations in the work environment and how work is an indication for other limitations that we have in our lives. Now, last week, we talked about the routine and how it makes us numb to the presence of God, much like the people on the road to Emmaus who were numbed to who God was and that he was with them at that very moment. This week, we take the next step. Beyond numb, we pull the coup d'etat. Let me ask you to turn to chapter 12, if you have your scriptures with you, chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke. And we will read there verses 42 through 46. I'm going to exclude 47 and 48. That's a whole different message. That's proportionate punishment, and we'll talk about that some other time. Let's talk about stewardship. Stewardship, by the way, is a biblical term which most people aren't familiar with. It means to be a manager of another's resources, to be a worker handling another's property. And in these verses... Jesus very clearly defines the three qualities of a good worker and the three qualities of a bad worker. Read with me. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Now, therein lie three qualities of a good worker. First of all, the first part of that verse, he is faithful and sensible. It means he does his job consistently and he thinks. The Greek word used here is phronimos. It means um, to be a thoughtful, wise uh, person. It comes from the Greek word friend, which means mind. To use your mind. C.S. Lewis says, you know, we need to have the hearts of children, but the minds of grown-ups. That's what a good Christian is. Turn with me, if you've got your scriptures, to Matthew 10, 16. And let me show you here the advice that Jesus gave his disciples as he was sending them out into the world to work. He gave them one piece of advice here. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd, there's that word again, wise, thoughtful, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, where is the last time you heard the word wise or shrewd combined with the word serpent? It was in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Remember who the serpent was representative of in the Garden of Eden? Satan. What is the Lord saying here? He says you've got to be smart as the devil. You've got to be as smart as the devil. You've got to be at least as smart as the devil to be a good worker. Christians are not to put away their brains in order to work. What, then, must you be thoughtful about? 
We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, I want to show you the second duty of not just the characteristic of a good worker, but the duty of a good worker. Look at the second part of that verse. Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their proper rations at the proper time. What is he saying is our job as a worker here? Our job as a worker is not to attain to ourselves what the master gives, but to distribute it. Every worker is a distributor for another's gifts. We are vessels to pass on what our boss has given us to pass on. And therefore, all of us, even when we have been put in charge, should feel very uneasy about appropriating anything of that office for ourselves, no matter what position it is. Because it's not ours. Let me tell you about Simon Bolivar. He was a liberator of much of South America. He was a soldier who fought the much of the uh, um, independence wars, much of the frontier skirmishes to liberate many of the countries, including uh, Colombia and uh, Peru and Bolivia and Panama. And Bolivia, by the way, got his name from Simon Bolivar. Um, and Venezuela. At 31 years old, imagine this if you can, 31 years old, here is this conquering hero standing in front of the Venezuelan people. They have just exercised a, a victorious war, establishing their independence from Spain. And because there is no native governmental apparatus set in place, this Simon Bolivar must take temporary dictatorship. But he absolutely hates the thought. And this is what he says. This is part of the speech that he gave to the Venezuelan people. He said, I will act only as a trustee for the supreme authority. He said this, a victorious soldier earns no right to rule. I will not usurp an authority that is not mine. Christian, I want you to learn that phrase. I want you to say it over and over and over again in your heart. I will not usurp an authority that is not mine. He said, my innermost sentiments are in utter conflict with my position of authority. And I long for the day when I may give up this position and become again only a man who fights for you people. Now, that is the sense of stewardship. Not that we are comfortable in authority ever. As a worker for our bosses and ultimately for the supreme authority, our inmost conflict is that we are not comfortable taking positions of authority because we are not comfortable usurping authority that is not ours. Okay, That is what a good worker is. Why can we not be comfortable? Look in the next verse. It says, And blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. i tell you what makes a good worker. A good worker is one who keeps in mind his accountability. 
The good steward, the good manager, is the one who is never at ease, uh, so to speak. Amos 6, 1 says, Cursed are those who are at ease in Zion. Zion was a biblical word for the promised land. And so what the Bible is saying is, don't ever get easy about being in the position of the promised land. Don't ever come to the place where you think you've got it made. A good worker is one who anticipates the coming of the Lord because he knows the Lord never left. Paul Shearer says, Be careful what you do in the Lord's absence because the Lord is not absent. He says eschatology. By the way, we're going to talk a lot in this, com- this coming fall about eschatology. Eschatology is the, is the doctrine of when the Lord comes to judge the quick and the dead. Remember that terrible, wonderful phrase in the Apostles' Creed. And sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Eschatology are those actions, those beliefs about when the Lord does that. Paul Shearer says... Eschatology is not about the end of life. It's about the quality of life. He said every day, every hour, we stand on the verge of heaven and hell. Why can he say that? Because he knows that just because the master is not apparent does not mean he's left completely. There will come a time when judgment will be much more apparent to us. But just because he's not a parent does not mean he's absent. He's still there. And when we keep that in mind, then we must operate in a way that has God's most valuable quality. He listens. You know, God himself listens. One of my favorite authoresses is uh, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. She is a brilliant theologian. She wrote a book called uh, God, Nature, and the Pulpit. And in this, um, she cites a friend, uh, Leslie Newbigin, who was all alone, hundreds of miles from where anyone lives in the jungles of India. And as, as Dr. Newbigin slept in those jungles at night, and as he heard the wonderful sound, the lions and the jackals and the monkeys and the symphony of birds. He thought to himself, all of this beautiful melody, who ever hears it? And it occurred to him almost as quickly, God does. God listens to it every night. God has made a creation from whom he hears great music sung to himself. God listens to us. But he also expects us to listen to him every day. I heard a story about a little girl who was in a store. And her mommy took her there to buy a doll. Mommy didn't have much money, so she kind of wanted to steer away from those high-priced dolls that, you know, can do all kinds of stuff on their own. So the little girl went down this aisle and says, Oh, look at this doll. What's this doll do? Mommy says, Well, the box says the doll just talks all the time. It can just talk by itself. But I don't think we probably want that doll. 
Oh, we don't know. I don't think we do. How about this doll? What's this doll do? Well, the box says that doll eats and wets. I don't think we want this doll. We don't know. We don't want that one. What's this doll do? Oh, this doll can walk by itself. Oh, I don't think we want that one. Oh, we don't know. We don't want it. Came finally to a little, simple doll. And the mother says, how about this doll? And the, do- and, the, and the little daughter says, well, she's awful pretty. But what does she do? And the wise mother says, this doll listens. I'm not sure God's so very impressed that we can walk and talk and wet. <laughs> I think he's impressed with people who will conduct their lives and listen. I think that's what he likes. Because Scripture is very clear that he never really left, although he's coming again very manifestly. Well, let's take a look then at the bad worker. What is the difference? Is the difference just that the good worker listens and the bad worker doesn't? No, 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 no. The difference is there's been a coup d'etat. The difference is the one step beyond numbness to God is taking over God's territory and pretending it's your own. Assuming it's your own because God is silent for the moment. Look at what it says. But, verse 45, if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. Now, first of all, before we go any further, let me tell you the first mark of a bad worker. He thinks with his heart. She thinks with her desires. She thinks, he thinks, in order to get their desires met. Because when you think with your heart, that's exactly how you're thinking. That's how, by the way, we got into trouble in the first place. When Eve saw that the fruit was a delight to the eye, She wasn't thinking with her mind. She was thinking with her desires. And so therefore, the slave, the bad worker, is one who thinks with his desires. Why is that so bad? Because Scripture is very clear that the heart is deceitful. As a matter of fact, it says that in Jeremiah 17, 9. You probably ought to have this underlined in your Scriptures. The heart is more deceitful than all else. And it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know what that says in English? That says in your language and in my language, we can justify anything we want. Bottom line, when we're thinking with our desires, we can justify anything we want and we can make it seem right. And after a while, what is really right seems odd. Becky had the weirdest uh, encounter the other day in the mall. She was there getting some keys made uh, for one of our kids. And uh, this, she said she was, you know, at one of those little booths, there's little key booths out in the middle of the thing there. And, and she's having this conversation. She said, these two beautiful young women, hard bodies, beautiful women, come up and they're giggling and laughing and so on and so forth and 
And they're talking. Becky doesn't mean, you know, she, but they're, they're waiting in line here. And everybody's kind of surrounding this little place. And these are very uh, gregarious gals. And, and they're talking. And, and uh, they're talking about having uh, tattoos on their bodies where the sun never shines. And Becky's a little uneasy with that whole conversation. But then they just kind of break it in. They say, well, what are you doing here? Becky says, well, I'm getting some keys made for a present for someone. She says, oh, man, what a great idea to her friend. What a great idea. We could have keys made to our apartment. And then every boy we like, we could just give him a key to our apartment. What a great idea. Thanks. <laughs> Beck's going. Where did that come from? Did I just say? And she says, she says, and she kept using the, you know, the deity word. Oh, my, you know, every, oh, my, that's the real popular thing. She said, say. Do you know who this boy's father is? And Beck says, yeah, he's still his father. You mean you're still together? Oh, my. Yeah. How long have you been married? 21 years. Oh, my. Man, you've been married that You guys think you'll stick together the rest of your life? Beck says, sure. Oh, my. And it was so weird for them, they just started wandering off. The little girl in the booth comes over. She saw Beck's... You know, it's, it's a terror. You look for ways to introduce the Lord, you know, something to say about it. She said there was no opening. But, the, but they wandered they wandered off and the little girl in the booth came, came over and noticed Becky's face said, Oh, thank goodness I'm a Baptist and I was almost out of here, you know. <laughs> Beck said, Man, I'm a Christian too. I, you know, I was just, it was weird. But see, what had happened there? What had happened there? Those are a couple of girls that thought in their hearts. They reasoned with their hearts. Because when you reason with your heart, anything seems right. Anything you want seems right. You know why? Because the heart wants to be lied to. Plato called it the lie of the soul. And so therefore, in our work, in our everyday, when we let our heart do the thinking... We're in trouble. Let me show you a verse in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Jesus sums it up with this verse. Turn there if you like, underline it if you will. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. By the way, it's because of the desperate situation of our heart that our heart must be converted, not our mind. If you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Your heart must be converted. But look at the natural state of the heart. Jesus says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. And then He starts to list them. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts. I believe that was in the skit. False witness... I believe that was in the skit. Slanders, and so on and so forth. Do you see the trouble of thinking with your heart? Now, after that, turn back to the Scripture text, and I'll show you the next step. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him because he's long since 
forgotten to expect him. Any day would be a day when he doesn't expect him. When you forget the presence of the Lord, you don't expect to ever hear from him again. You've got it out of your mind. Look what it says. When he does not expect him, and an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now that sounds cruel, doesn't it? But let me share something with you. A bad worker has just tried to steal from God his kingdom. The first time I ever heard a street person say, I'll tell you the law of the streets. The law of the streets says if you're strong enough to take it from somebody, if you're smart enough to take it from somebody, it is rightfully yours. That's the law of the street. And I thought to myself, how unconscionable, how barbaric. But as I lived life beyond that, I thought, it's also the law of the office. If you can get it, it's yours. If you can steal it, it's yours. If you can outsmart somebody, it's yours. And that applies whether we're talking about lust in the office or whether we're talking about stealing a pencil or stealing 15 minutes to an hour. Whatever we're talking about, we have just taken what was God's, the resources of that boss that we're supposed to distribute, and we have used it for ourselves. That is a coup d'etat. That is the real distraction, being distracted from God's ownership and assuming our own ownership. Now, how can that happen? And why is it so right that we continue to think in terms of God coming again? This is what I said I would bring up later in the sermon. What does it mean to be thoughtful? What it means is this. That even though there is an apparent divergence from the presence of God, although it's only apparent, it is never real. God will come again to judge. And we need to know that even though we haven't made the connection, that when we sin, there is a connection being made. Let me tell you the last... uh, I'm going to close with this. Let me tell you the last time I ever stole anything. Last time I've ever been tempted to steal anything. I've been tempted in other areas, but never stealing, and I'll tell you why. 1959, Shelby, Ohio. I was 11 or 12 years old. I can't add up that fast. But at this age, I am very interested in girls, but not brave. So I didn't establish relationships with girls. I just was curious about girls. Well... My best friend and I decided to ride our bikes downtown and just hang out in different stores. They still do that, by the way, at malls. They call them mall rats. Where were mall rats before there were malls? You know, we're down, going in and out the stores. Great for the proprietors. I'm sure they really appreciate this. But we're in there and looking around. And finally, we end up in this store called Hex Rexall Drugstore. Remember the Rexall Drugstore? Rexall Drugstore. We're standing there in front of the magazine rack. And I spot this magazine up on the top shelf. For men only. Oh, yeah. Want to see that one. Now, before your imaginations get all uh, inflamed here, 
Uh, let me remind you that in 1959, girly magazines were not anything like they are today. I mean, two-piece bathing suit was about, you know, as racy as they got. But, you know, for me, it was real racy. So I'm looking, every time I got this thing, leafing through this, whoa, pretty neat pictures here. And I had a boat neck sweater on. And I just slipped that thing under my sweater. And I said, Army, let's go. Army said, we just got here. Come on. Get out of here. Okay, so he puts his book back. So here we go out in front. Now let me picture this for you. Our bicycles are leaning up against the front of the store, which is a huge plate glass window. Let me tell you how stupid I am. I go out in front of this store facing the plate glass window, looking at our bikes. Army's standing here and said, Army, look what I got. And I pull this my sweater up to reveal this magazine. And as I do, my eyes go up and meet the manager of the store who is looking out the plate glass window directly at me. And I went, ah! He's giving me one of these. So I took about a 10-mile walk <laughs> into the store to stand face-to-face with this guy. Now, this is in the day when you don't take off. You respect your elders. You look at them face-to-face when they're talking to you. He looked at me and said, Son, you going to pay for that book? Well, now, there's a trick question if I ever heard one. (laughs) If I said, Yeah, he wouldn't let me buy it anyhow. I know. You know, you didn't let boys buy books like that back then. So I knew I was smarter than that. I said, No, sir. He said, Go put it back. Another 10-mile walk. Man, I'm sweating. I'm, I'm thinking, why in the world I wear this sweater? I'm sweating like a dog. I'm just sweat's pouring off me. I'm just, oh, what's he going to do? Got back in front of him. He looks at me and he says, "How would you like me to tell your mother what you just tried to steal?" And I'm thinking to myself, this guy doesn't know my mother. But again, you don't sass adults, and the shame just at the mention of that just washed over me and said, oh, no, sir, I wouldn't like that. He looked at me and he said, son, don't ever try to steal anything for as long as you live again. And I looked at him, boy, sweating now, pouring. I won't. I won't. And I knew I wouldn't. Got out of there, hopped on my bike. We ran as fast as we could home. Thought, thinking maybe you'd have to change your mind and call the police and here they're after. Fast as we can. I get in the house. I'm starting to calm down. Starting to feel safe. My mom's getting ready for supper. She says this. So, Joy, what'd you do today? <laughs> Matt starts sweating all over again. Said, oh, nothing. Just went in and out some stores downtown, Mom. Really? What stores? Now I'm really starting to sweat. Because my mom didn't miss a trick. She could read me like a hawk. I never got away with anything. And so I'm starting to name off these stores, trying to check out her reaction to them as I name them off. Oh, went in Struble's, went in Ben Franklin, went in Hex Rexall, went in the People's Store. Ah, Hex Rexall, she says. (laughs) Now it's pouring. Big drops of blood. She looked at me and said, Joey, did I ever tell you that the manager of that store 
John Heck used to babysit for you when you were little. Let me end the story here and say to you this. The manager of this place knows who you are. And there isn't a thing that you can do that will not affect you wherever you live. The judgment is real. Repent. Stand and let me pray for us. God, there may be some in here this morning that feel horribly, awfully guilty. But they don't know you and they don't know what to do with their guilt. They don't know if they repent. They are sure to have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Let them this day claim you, Jesus, and your blood sacrifice as their salvation. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins... You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there may be some today who are ready to say, God, I've lived apart from you. I don't want to live apart from you anymore. Jesus, come inside. I surrender to you my life, including my behavior, including my thoughts, including my desires. I give them all to you, Lord God. Make of my life whatever you want. And the rest of us, God, who started out with you as boss and have slowly pulled a coup, we have slowly taken over your possessions and treated them as our own. We think of it as our job. We think of it as our marriage. We think of it as our home. We think of it as our friendship. God, remind us However you need to. It's not ours. It's yours. Help us not to usurp an authority that is not ours. Help us to repent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit, be in you and be distributed through you from now until he comes again. Go in peace.